Hi everyone, my name is Dylan Chaus and welcome to the Existential Delight podcast number three. I have a script in front of me because I don't want to miss some important details and I'm not even going to pretend as if I don't have a script. So if it looks like I'm reading, that's because I'm reading. Let's begin. In this third episode of the podcast, I have a really great conversation with Mr. Paul Vanderclay. He is a Dutch Reformed pastor in the Christian Church of America who has been following the Jordan Peterson movement since its early stages. Mr. Vanderclay is a very interesting guy with a lot of valuable thoughts and has even interviewed Jordan Peterson himself. He runs a YouTube channel titled After His Name, Paul Vanderclay. He's also on Twitter at Paul Vanderclay, and he is on Substack, and he also has a blog, all the links to which can be found below in the description of this video. In our conversation, we talk about Jordan Peterson, the new atheism movement, the recent resurgence of online Christian pages and interest in Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. We talk about progressive Christianity, and we also touch on elements of the Reformation, as well as what it means when we say that the Bible is the Word of God. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think that you will too. And uh, that might be scripted, but that's really true. I really did enjoy this conversation. Paul Vanderclay is a very interesting guy to talk to. Um, he's very well read, so he touches on a lot of interesting points that I would never have thought of. So I think you're going to enjoy this one. Now, before we jump into the video, I'd like to mention that Existential Delight has its first sponsor, which is the Riken Movement. Now, the purpose of the company, the, the mission, the goal is to help people achieve their true potential, to encourage us to find our reason and meaning in life. You guys know I'm all about meaning in life and then sharing that meaning with others to help them on the same journey that they might find their reason, their meaning. Riken firmly believes that we need a greater meaning in our lives and through this meaning we can accomplish what we set out to. The Riken Movement online store features high-quality fitness, comfort, and workout gear for both men and women. And like me, the creators of Riken are South African. I've actually known Riken's creator for quite some time now, and I like what the company stands for. Even though they are a South African brand, the online store does ship worldwide. They sent me a bunch of their gear, and I must say that I am quite impressed. I'm actually wearing one of their hoodies right now really nice the design is nice it feels good the, it's meant for working out so it's supposed to be comfortable you know you're supposed to be able to navigate through time and matter and space with your with your body while wearing these so these are perfect um, i think that the quality is good it's good value for money and also on that note you can find the link to their online store in the description of this video down below and at checkout, you will even get 20% off your purchase if you use the discount code DELIGHT. Like existential delight, but just delight. That's D-E-L-I-G-H-T, delight. The initial discount is only running until the end of August. So check them out, grab yourself some good gear, support a local South African company, enjoy the comfort, and encourage others to find their reason. Reichenmovement.com. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I bring you and I give you my conversation with Paul Vanderclay. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here today. Today, I'm going to be talking to Mr. Paul Vanderclay. Um, he is a 
YouTuber, much more than a YouTuber, but somebody who's been uploading to YouTube for quite a while now, and I've been following his work for a good amount of time. And I think he has some valuable things to say, some interesting thoughts. And I've always felt, Paul, that you've really had your uh, finger on the pulse of the Jordan Peterson movement, especially as it was beginning to expand and people were realizing wow, this has got some serious implications for the way that the youth perceives Christianity. And I, I've always seen you as somebody who is right there on the, the cutting edge of that. So just so that anybody watching has a little bit of an idea of what kind of work you're doing, where you are, I thought we could begin by you maybe just telling us what kind of work do you do? What kind of work are you currently engaged in? And what do you find meaningful about it? Okay. Well, I am a local church pastor in the Christian Reformed Church of North America, which is Dutch Reformed. I, My father was a Christian Reformed minister, and my grandfather was a Christian Reformed minister, so I'm third generation into this. My father pastored a small inner city congregation just outside of New York City, and now I pastor a um inner city and the west coast of the united states is a little different from the east coast but it's a struggling neighborhood a lot of homeless a lot of group homes with mental illness and it's a it's a very diverse ethnically diverse culturally diverse congregation but quite small and probably nearing the end of its um the end of its sort of normal life as a church small churches like this usually last about 60 years so about three years ago three and a half years ago i began noticing Jordan Peterson and not only what he was doing, but what was happening around him. And I became very interested in it. And so I decided that I would make this, um, I would I would study this pretty closely. And what happened in that process was I found um, a number of people began to approach me, wanted to talk more about it, wanted to continue the conversation around this and so I, I very much do find my local church work very meaningful, but also the Jordan Peterson work and the YouTube work. And the YouTube is sort of a combination of me sharing my thoughts, thinking out loud as I observe what's going on, conversations with other people as um, they tend to be caught up in this wave. And then some commentaries, commentary videos on videos that I find important or noteworthy. And that that's that sort of bled over into in real life meetup groups, helping to start meetup groups in real life and also some online uh, type spaces that I call estuary, sort of the Bridges of Meaning Discord servers, one of them, where mm. people can Christians and non-Christians can come together and talk about life in a way that um, both find meaningful and productive. Wow, that's interesting. Do you think there's a... Um, so I don't know what the right term would be. I'm, I'm tempted to use the word archetype, but I don't think that's the right word. But do you think there's a progression or do you think it's a common progression that you find that there are a lot of young millennials who went through this phase of uh, sort of shaky Christianity, which was kind of just passed on to them by their parents, um, and they didn't really ever look into it deeply um, as young people? And then the new atheism wave came in. And because everybody's watching YouTube, especially millennials, I sometimes actually think people underestimate how many millennials are actually just daily watching YouTube. And it's not just millennials, but just for the purposes of this conversation. 
they get get hit with this wave of new atheism suddenly they find that the foundation that they've built their beliefs on is very shaky it sort of collapses they become atheists and then a few years go by and people find that that's not that fulfilling and jordan peterson kind of comes along and begins sort of patching up the holes and starts making sense of things and then you end up with with a lot of people myself included who then actually see the value in christianity the more i the more i'm engaged in discourse with people around me and the more i'm watching youtube the more i'm realizing how surprisingly common that progression has been would you say it's it's common uh do you think that there's a lot of people that jordan peterson is just completely um you know he's just sort of scratched the right itch for a lot of people oh yeah there are a lot of people now the world is a big place yeah so there are many many people for whom that isn't the case but there are tens probably hundreds of thousands of people in that category in the english-speaking west u.s canada uk australia netherlands germany i mean some of some other places in europe where um, English is um, where people are very competent in English. Oh yeah, it's it's a big, big group. And it's a group that sort of took everyone by surprise because atheism for a long time simply assumed Christianity was was just going to continue to recede and then to see this bounce back. And the way that it's bounced back is a big shock to a lot of culture watchers. And even many in the church are unaware and surprised and ironically for some not welcoming this change mm. because they had more of a modernistic myth of progress that they assumed and they they thought christianity would sort of transform continue to transform into this modernist religion without understanding that sort of at the end of that progression are the new atheists and that um, Christian um, modernistic Christianity is probably about at the end of its course. What, how would you define or how would you explain modernist Christianity? What, what does that entail? It, it's, it was a way that over the last couple of hundred years, Christians have been trying to reformulate Christianity in a modernist frame. Jordan Peterson begins Maps of Meaning saying that there are two ways to approach the world, uh, a world of objects and a form for action. Modernism is sort of this world of objects where everything is turned into a thing. And in fact, God is turned into a thing. Hmm. And God is not yet another thing in the universe. And Christians have known that for a very, very long time. And it was actually Peterson, I think in some ways, accidentally began to show that in a very compelling way, I think a sort of unconscious way to people who had, just like you described, had sort of gone through the nihilism route, hit bottom, and then found that nihilism is a dead end. It, it's human beings cannot live without a system. A lot mm -hmm. of atheists sort of continue to subside from Christian morality and other aspects of Christianity. But once, once you really begin to, once you 
once it starts to settle in that there is no purpose and meaning in life, well, then there is no purpose and meaning for life. Yeah, exactly. And even nihilism is in itself not even worth fighting for because, because you're fighting for nothing effectively. Right. And nihilism doesn't care if you fight for it or not. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's, it, it, it is kind of like the God that atheists uh, criticize. They'll say, you know, or, or it's kind of like the God that atheists will say, we, we, we pray to, but he, he's not there at all. Well, that's basically nihilism. It's just, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're trying to derive meaning in your life. You're sort of, you've turned it into this. I mean, I, I don't think many people think of nihilism as, as a, nobody thinks of it as a God that they worship, but they essentially order their lives around these principles of, well, these non-principles, right? These nothings. And then they expect meaning to be derived from that. So then they, they begin searching for meaning in other sources, but the framework you're using to derive meaning is already at its base meaningless. So it's not like you're going to find meaning externally because whatever's coming from the external into the internal is going through this filter of nothing. And um, it's, it, it, it really is. Um, I mean, even when you, when you feel grateful about something, you've got no one to thank. <laughs> it's just yeah. absolute yeah. Uh, emptiness. And um, so this, this, uh, this tendency to try and um, I, I think, I think people are always looking for meaning, whether they know it or not. Like we're we're always turning things into idols, um, and you'll see it with. I, I'm I know you know this, but you'll see it with. I mean, you know, a kid gets really into a, a rock band in high school, and then they put posters up on the wall. They wear T-shirts. They they wake up every morning to the alarm clock is that band's, uh, you know, the, their favorite song, and all they can talk about is that band, and they know the band members, and they know the band history, and and. They, they've effectively dedicated their lives to, in some sense, ordering themselves around this, around this, uh, whatever it happens to be, band, uh, maybe it's, you know, for some people it might even be, um, you know, a movie or, or a series of movies. You get people that, you know, their whole lives seem to be dedicated to Star Wars. And, and it's not that there's anything wrong with enjoying a movie or enjoying a rock band, but it's almost like there's this, this mechanism inside of them that's trying to worship and it's just kind of firing wildly at anything that it can grab and anything that gives it even the tiniest bit of meaning, it, it completely envelops and it becomes a core part of their identity. But those things ultimately don't fulfill you, right? Because they're always, I mean, they're not meant to sustain you through the suffering of life. So um, I think that a lot of these guys who, like you said, go down to the bottom, they hit nihilism, they then begin going up. On the way up, I think this is why there's a lot of pushback from a lot of Christians about Jordan Peterson because you, your your atheist friend will suddenly start saying, they'll be watching Jordan Peterson, they'll start going, wow, man, I actually think there's a lot of value to Christianity. And then they'll start talking about Jungian archetypes. And a lot of Christians will kind of go, okay, hold on, <laughs> you're going in the wrong direction. But what I found is that I think of these things kind of like stepping stones. So for me, in my case, the Jungian archetypes made me realize that the world is a lot stranger than we think it is. And that there's more to be said about the unconscious than, than it's just, you know, it's just, it's just nothing. It's just, um, it's there, it's influencing you in ways you don't understand, but we can't understand it. And Jung kind of maps that out a little bit. And that already starts changing your relationship to thought and your relationship to the things I think about are going to impact me. And it starts making the world more mysterious because you go outside and, you know, from a Jungian 
point of view, you might begin looking for synchronicities. And so you're already sort of formulating this idea that there's something beyond you that you're not aware of. And that's a stepping stone that can eventually get you to the point where you actually see, okay, hold on, there's something completely beyond me, but it's actually personal. And eventually you get to the point where you think of that as God. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think that's right. I think that's right. The, the So the reaction to Jordan from was different from different poles in the Christian camp. So I think you're right in terms of conservative Christians that were put off by Peterson's connection with Jung, by Peterson's devotion to evolution, not just in terms of a developmental theory about human origins, but also because Peterson used it as sort of an indication of a, a tell on ontology. And so that's where you get sort of this Darwinian truth. And that alienated, that alienated a lot of people. Other Christians were alienated because in many ways, a good part of the church or a large part of the church has sort of bought into a modernistic age of progress and Peterson, with his skepticism about some of these progressivist tendencies on you know, progressive human sexuality, some of these things, seemed regressive. And so part of what is sometimes called what Jordan Hall calls the blue church really kicked back hard against Peterson. And mm -hmm. so conservative Christians listened to Peterson and said, He's not against evolution. He likes Jung too much. We shouldn't listen to him. Very progressive Christians listened to him and said, he's not down with the moral project as we see it. So we're against him. So then this other group, but this other group in the middle that I think really took the hardcore plunge into new atheism began to see that new atheism simply isn't workable. Um, mm -hmm. And what we've seen, interestingly enough, over the last few years is that the church of atheism itself has sort of crumbled, sort of split between atheism plus this progressivism and then these classical liberal atheists like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, who weren't ready to go to continue along this really eschatological, um, this eschatological religious new woke religion trajectory that many in the church have also followed along with, but they weren't about to, you know, they weren't about to become suddenly interested in Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy. So this group in the middle has been the one that has said, wow, I need something solid in my life. And that has sort of led to um, the, the traditional sacramentalist traditions in the faith because mm -hmm. that sacramentalism I think was was vitally important because it was both very concrete but also very symbolic and so with the Jonathan Peugeot, Jonathan Peugeot's contribution that is very much led to to that you know revivification of particularly Roman Catholicism and and Orthodoxy in the West yeah that I, I think that's that's spot on and the uh, those in the center that you described, 
I think that a lot of a lot of them when they when they hear Peterson talking about maybe topics that seem seem far fetched or maybe out of their comfort zone a little bit. I've always just taken the approach that well, he's on the right track. I don't see him as going further away. I kind of think that Peterson is genuinely seeking the truth. And if Christ is truth, I think he's going to be the bottom of the rabbit hole. And I think you can kind of see that in in Peterson now where he's he's sort of moving closer towards um I mean, if you look at the recent interviews, it seems like he is he is trying he's wrestling more with the resurrection as a as a fact you know as an actual historical fact and i i think that getting to that point can require you to maybe introduce yourself to ideas that you hadn't previously considered like i keep using jungian archetypes as an example but looking at the world through a different lens might actually knock you out of your reductionism a little bit your your mere materialism right and it might lead you to a point where you go, okay, there's more, there's more than I thought there was, and uh, perhaps even I've got a, a thousand arrows pointing me towards Christ. Perhaps it's it's more of a coincidence. It, it's it's more difficult to believe that all these arrows are just coincidence. Um, for me specifically, um, I was a pantheist for a time, and I, I used that term very deliberately when I was one because I, I had I had I had been involved with psychedelics for a while. And that had kind of changed my, that actually, that completely destroyed my materialism. <laughs> I, uh, which is, it, it's a, it's a, it's a sensitive point for a lot of Christians because I, I don't advocate psychedelics and I don't think people should take them to meet God. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And I think for every one person that takes them and gets out of it, I think there are nine more people who, who don't, who get stuck into that world. But for me, that led me to pantheism, which ended up with me thinking that the universe and everything we experience including you and I that we are ourselves God and I actually got to a point where I realized that I'm thinking too small Um, which sounds quite funny because I mean how can you think small when you think that everything that you see everything you experience the universe itself is God but actually the notion and I'm, I'm touching back onto what you said about God being an object in the world well God sustains the world through love but it's not necessarily that god is another object in the world like if you bake a cake and you have it's not like i have flour and i have eggs and i have god and i have you know baking powder god is the the substance which underlies everything but is it but is at the same time still distinct from the world um you'll correct my theology if i get anything wrong but that made me realize that actually christians often get accused of thinking too small but we're actually going even beyond the universe, right? And um, I think, going back to the original point, on that way up, back towards some kind of firm foundation, whether that be um, a belief in Christ or more specifically orthodoxy or Catholicism, you might go through many phases and you might meet an individual guy or lady who is in one of those phases, but they're still on the right path. They're still much better off now than they were when they were just completely in mere materialism, complete atheism, right? Part of what led me to this was I was listening to the the first Jordan Peterson, actually it's the third Jordan Peterson conversation with Sam Harris, but the first one in that series of four, which was in Vancouver with Brett Weinstein. And you get almost to the end of that conversation and they haven't yet talked about God. 
And so they finally get around to asking Jordan, what do you mean by God? And Jordan has this list of a bunch of things. And I listened to that list as someone who, again, I'm a Dutch Calvinist, and I could hear in Jordan's list descriptions of God from the very early Reformation, okay? And that's key because of the trajectory that the Reformation took. So at the beginning of the Reformation, you read in documents like the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, um, Lord's Day 10 on Providence, God brings fat years and lean years. You have this vic- you have this vision of God who, as Isaiah says, the whole earth is full of his glory. He shines through all that's fair. You have this vision of God through the world. You can see God through the world, Romans 1. And Jordan Peterson was seeing that. Sam Harris listens to that and says, that's not what we mean when we mean by God. And then you hear all these other aspects from Sam Harris that Sam Harris is debunking and pushing back on, which are all elements of a uh, an agentic God, God who is agent. And mm. in Christianity and Judaism before it, um, God is both agent and arena. And so I called this God number one and God number two. Um, God as arena, and then God as agent. And so part of what I think Jordan Peterson did was jump everybody back. And I'm not at all surprised that your first step was pantheism, because that's once again beginning to realize the, um, I don't want to, enchanted is, I haven't, I don't have a better word yet for it, but the enchanted nature of the universe. Yeah. Once you understand the enchanted nature of the universe, as C.S. Lewis would note, well, now suddenly you're understanding that the world is a stranger place, that there are, in fact, spirits around, but they're not what we think of spirits sort of in a late modernity. Um, but the, 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 the world is shot through with spirits. Once you see that, you are now ready to begin to understand the source of all of this and God as agent um and God as arena together. And I think that's why many have basically taken the same trajectory as you. And and Jung in that way sort of begins to make sense because he 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 is sort of this bridge person to remythologize the universe. Once your universe is remythologized, now suddenly all of the 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 logic that built Christianity and sort of the reason Christianity took over the classical world now suddenly sort of steps into place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's sort of what's happening on a micro level with individuals who are taking this path. Yeah, very well said. And it it's for me, uh, living a mythological life is tremendously exciting and much more meaningful. I mean, I can't, there's really no other game in town, really. I mean, once you, because what happens is your life actually gets embedded into a larger narrative, right? So instead of just being <laughs> a talking monkey floating on an organic spaceship, <laughs> you actually have, uh, when you wake up in the morning, there's a challenge to you. You know, what am I going to do with my time? Because it is ultimately a gift. 
and it frames every situation. Situations are not no longer just happening, but they're actually happening to you and in some sense for you. So the the it's not just that you put on different lenses, but you put on different lenses, but that changes the way you interact with reality, which actually ultimately leads to a different experience of reality, right? And that is not something that you can just, you can imitate. Uh, you kind of have to be all in. You have to, you have to really start thinking, wow, this is actually real. When I, when I sit and I pray, I have a direct one-to-one line to something that wants the absolute best for me. And uh, that imposes, yes, responsibility on upon you, but it's through that responsibility that you derive um, a, a meaning deeper than any material wealth is going to give you, right? So I think that's one way I'd like to sum it up is um, once you, becoming a Christian is not just becoming a Christian, it's actually you engage life differently and you're now part of a larger story, but it's the best story that you could be in. And in fact, it's the true story. As uh, um, I think it was Tolkien said, it's the true myth, right? It's the one myth that's actually true. It actually, all the other myths find their origin in the story of Christ. They're all related to it. They all have fragments of truth, sort of fragmentary truths distributed, but they all come together, the perfect circle of truth within the Christian story. And once you once you see that, even if you struggle, which is part of the story, even if you're a, a terrible sinner, that is still you still have a place in that story, um, no matter what happens to you. There's there's always access. You can at any moment try to get back on track and live that mythological life. Um, and there's there's a certain element of 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 freedom that comes with that because. So I have to be careful how I phrase this. But you just stop wanting to know the answers to all the questions. Um, okay, you still you're still curious. I don't want I don't want to sound like I'm saying Christianity robs you of your curiosity because you know one of the things that often gets um, criticized for is that oh Christians you know you just believe whatever you're told and then you stop thinking about the world. But that's not the case. It gives you a framework for thinking, and it gives you a framework for thought. Right, so you can kind of just understand okay now i know what i have to do i've i've found the truth now i have to face the truth which is actually much harder than finding the truth facing it right um because it can be terrifying it can be absolutely terrifying when you look back at your life and realize um you know all the changes i need to make and you you feel as if you're starting from from the beginning but the part of the story is and again i use the word story the true story is that that is ultimately the first step on a path to true joy, true hope, and all of the other virtues that come along with the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and everything terrible can happen to you, but that hope cannot be taken away. Um, and so I think that, I think what's happening now is this explosion online of a lot of young people, even Gen Z, who are actually becoming more more overtly religious, more convicted about their beliefs because they're growing up in an extremely, um, what's the word, uh, an environment which is extremely divided, right? So you're either completely on one side or completely on the other. So you get a lot of people who are um, quite zealous. That's a, a consequence of the 
of of how it's Christianity's been lacking for so long. Now that you have these young people who are kind of coming along and finding this meaning, once they get a little taste of it, they just they just latch onto it completely. And then they turn on the media and they see things that are completely antithetical to what they believe. And it just galvanizes that faith even more, right? Um, yep. So uh, Chesterton had this wonderful, wonderful line. He said that um, each, each generation is converted by the saint which contradicts it the most. <laughs> I love that line. And I can kind of see that playing out in a way here, but it's almost in the opposite way where the culture so contradicts what you what you believe that you realize there's no way that can be right. Um, there's no way I can I can see myself going down that road. And so the, the faith just gets galvanized and it's happening to a, a lot of young people. I mean, just sometimes I'll just be scrolling on Instagram and I'll find these pages of, you know, 15 year olds 16 year olds and they're it's just explicitly christian they're reading theology yeah. there yeah. and i don't know if if that would have been the case five six seven years ago um, or at least as intensely as it is now right it seems yeah. to be growing yeah um let's uh i'd like to ask you another question this is a little bit more personal perhaps but i am just curious because i don't i don't get to talk to pastors very often but what 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 is the most challenging thing in your in your situation for you about being a pastor? I, I don't find being a pastor that challenging. Um, I you know I sort of grew into this mm. by watching my father, even if I didn't know I was watching him. I think. I think the church now is struggling because, and I don't mean just my local church, which is struggling too, but in its own particular ways, but the church, the overall church is struggling to try to understand how to both not lose the narrative thread that goes back 2000 years to the apostles and to Jesus, but also um, connect people coming today to it. And so I, I very much agree that there is a wave of new Christians that are going to be coming into the church, but they are not going to be responding to the evangelistic efforts of the church in as much as they are going to be responding to what's happening in the culture, just as you described it. Mm. And whereas I think in some ways that gives the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic a little bit of a leg up because in those churches, there's a set liturgy and a set sacramental vision that someone can sort of slide into and not have to actually engage all of the naughty issues that modernity brought up. In other words, the Protestant Reformation happened for a reason. And those issues aren't going away. And so my challenge is, is much more to figure out what, how the church is going to need, 
how the church is going to disciple this new generation of people coming into it. Now, again, I think a lot are coming in to the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox, partly because it is a, they are, these are sacramental liturgical traditions. And so one can easily, especially initially, sort of slide right in there. Protestantism is a very, is a very yakky tradition. I mean, if you look at a Protestant worship service, you've got some liturgy, you've got communion, um, you've, you know, you've got a little bit of physicality, but it's mostly talk, 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 talk. And so I think part of the reason for the movement into Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy is it's not so yakky. And so a lot of these issues that are out there in terms of a lot of the things that sort of got raised in modernity can sort of be laid to the side. I can go to church. I can participate in the mass. I can participate in the liturgy, which is, you know, pretty much all from scripture and the tradition. And this, this is a feeding, this is feeding a part of my soul mm -hmm. that the world has not been feeding. So that feels really good. Yeah. But these other issues are still out there. And these are issues that modernity and Christianity has been wrestling with. There's a sense among this particular new cadre of believers that the answers given by, by modern Christianity are really insufficient, but those questions and challenges are still out there. And so then the, 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 the challenge will be to address those things. And I, I'm beginning to suspect that we're going to see a situation more similar to what we saw in the Middle Ages, where the church is... The church is sort of in church. People are dealing with the liturgy and the sacrament and, and, and that life is going on, but it'll be in other places. And in, in, in the medieval period and the late medieval period, it was of course the universities where um, which of course is where the places universities, you know, were created by the church and, but, but it's not going to be in, the universities we currently have now, because the sense is they're corrupt. We're not going to go there. Um, it's going to be more monastic, where it's going to be um, thought and life integrated. And and so I, I tend to think that's where it's going to go. And so I can, because I was raised in the modernistic church, I can continue to keep shop in that place because that language is set, the traditions are set, but the the more challenging thing is to figure out, okay, what will this new um, this 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 new cohort of disciples need? Mm. Because I think what we're going to see is. We're seeing sort of a rush into Catholic and Orthodox spaces. And I think that will go for a while. But I think these people are going to be restless and they're going to challenge these, you know, quite ancient traditions. And I think that's going to then spur some new institutions. This is not 
dissimilar to, let's say, the Counter-Reformation in the Roman Catholic Church, where monasticism was corrupt, and part of what happened in the Counter-Reformation was monasticism was revivified. But I think we're going to see it now along the lines of the bandwidth with all of the new technologies that we're seeing today. And I don't think any of us can really predict what that's going to look like or the implications of that. Yeah. Um, that's a very interesting thought. The way that it's going to, it's almost like within, it's almost like more reformations are coming in a sense. Things are always being reformed, right? Um, with the Protestant uh when you when you started you mentioned the the sort of challenges of modernity and the, the the fact that the problems are still there and you have a lot of these young people sort of going to catholicism and eastern orthodoxy i think it's um i agree with you that there's definitely an element of everything is kind of already established this is what i need to believe this is the way things are um this is what i need to do to be a part of the church and I completely agree with you. You can you can slot in. Of course, there are certain things you have to believe, and there's certain changes you have to make in your life. But um, I think people are also a lot of younger people are also hungry for just tradition as tradition, right? So people, I think one way I like to think about it is that um in the modern world we tend to look at our ancestors and think should sh should i be ashamed of my ancestors sort of a modern approach uh, for, to me traditionalism is asking yourself the question would my ancestors be ashamed of me <laughs> <laughs> and i think a lot of people feel that way and i think people just yes a lot of terrible things have happened but people don't just want to wave away all the incredible things that our ancestors have done i mean one day we will be the ancestors um you know for future generations and so people sort of look back at their ancestors and this modern idea that they were all just barbaric you know and and idiots that just falls flat on its face and so when people see tradition and they think oh wow it's not this not just that i'm going to a catholic church but I'm mean, engaging in something ancient, just as it is, right? Even um, I recently got married and I had a friend there who's an atheist. And he said, I loved the tradition of the marriage. Um, he wasn't talking about the teachings. He wasn't talking about the, the biblical readings. He just loved the fact that we had an established way of doing it because he's been to many weddings, as have I, where everything is kind of just make it up as you go along. But I think a lot of people are hungry for that tradition. They're hungry for, a, uh, for, for something that is older than they are, older than their parents are, older than their grandparents are. And so uh, Catholicism, Orthodoxy offer that up in a sense. And then on top of that, you also have the, uh, the, liturgical, the litur liturgical aspects. You have the, the religious aspects. So on adding on to that, that thought i think a lot of young people are just kind of fed up with this idea that you have to be modern and your modern ethics have to be they have to match society around you and i think it's just people love to rebel and i think a lot of young people are just i mean they turn on the tv and they see the news and i think youtube is kind of uh 
you know, lifted the curtain a little bit on a lot of these things because secondary forms of media or alternative forms of media rather are kind of exposing people to other sides of the stories that they've been hearing. And so I, I, I see it in my own country here in South Africa, and I'm sure you see it where you stay, but there's an incredibly large distrust of the media. And I think that anything that rebels against that, any act of tradition, they see as a, as a worthy rebellion to pursue. Since we are talking about the problems of modern Christianity and um, how does Protestantism deal with that, which I think is actually a, a really interesting question that a lot of people should be thinking about is, for me, when I was attending a Catholic church, I was actually trying to sort of figure out where I wanted to go, what I wanted to pursue. And um, I was attending a Protestant church one week, and then I went to an Orthodox church, and then I went to, <laughs> went to a Catholic church. And um, eventually I was alternating between the Protestant and the Catholic church. And I, d I don't mean this in, in a disrespectful way to the Protestant church I attended, but the sermon just felt like a pep talk. Um, it felt like there was a topic... I mean, we were doing a kind of living room series where each week we would go through a series and the scripture was always secondary. So in the sense that there was a message that they wanted to share, but the Bible verses were sort of just um, accompanying the message of the pastor. And then the next week I go to the Catholic church and you've got an Old Testament reading. You've got a New Testament reading. We stand for the gospel um, you know, you, you have mass, you have the Eucharist, where from the Catholic point of view, you're actually having a direct encounter with Christ himself. Um, and then the next week, it's just, there's no images on the walls, which there are reasons for that, granted. But just the, the contrast between the two, I just didn't feel that what I was looking for was there. It was just, it, it just felt barren. Um, I think a lot of people are experiencing that, right? So, how do you think the Protestant church would reach out to, and I, I say Protestant church like it's, you know, but within... If it's one thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. So how do you think individual churches, what could they do to try and appeal more to young people? Should they just start WhatsApping them Jordan Peterson videos? <laughs> that was a joke. I, 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 think, I think implicit in what you just described is that in some ways the appeal, it, it, the the posture of appeal itself has become problematic. Mm. And I, mm. I think it's helpful to remember that in many ways, the Protestant revolution launched the modern revolution. Mm. Um, the Enlightenment was a reaction to the was a reaction to the undermining of authority that Protestantism exposed in the Roman Catholic world. Now, I think in places where the Counter-Reformation was successful, which were a lot of places, I mean, it's, it's helpful to remember that the that Protestantism in the old world really only took root in Germany, you know, Switzerland, 
the Netherlands, and now Switzerland and the Netherlands were both sort of these liminal spaces, and then England. And on the basis of that, it, of course, launched over into the Americas via England because English separatists went over to the Americas. Roman Catholicism continued to hold sway in you know, the most important nation in Europe at that time, which was France. Spain, which became the most important nation in you know, most of the rest of the Americas. Orthodoxy, of course, was holding sway in the Soviet Union and in the East that was sort of being gobbled up by Islam. And so it's the, the, the power of Protestantism really took hold in the um, age of exploration and the colonial period when the English and, you know, the English really colonized good, you know, good chunks of the world. But it's also important to remember that what happened in the French Revolution was in some ways analogous and I think a result of the suppression of the Protestant Reformation in France, okay? And so what I mean by that is that there were the old, as C.S. Lewis calls it, the discarded image of the, the classical medieval synthesis, this world picture that held sway in the medieval period all throughout Christendom. When that fell apart, something else needed to take form. And so modernity eventually was born out of the fact that the church couldn't create a new synthesis to replace the the orthodox or the roman catholic synthesis mm -hmm. that held sway in europe and so these secular attempts at synthesis pretty much began to conquer and in many ways um, conquered the world and the church now what you notice when you go to a roman catholic church is i think in some ways the a, a preservation of that ancient synthesis which had a power of its own but as c.s lewis says in his last chapter of the discarded image there's you know there were there were some there were some critical aspects of the ancient synthesis that were simply wrong and were exposed as wrong now what comes out of that are all of these facsimiles through Protestantism. And so when you go to a Protestant church and you hear this message, which has sort of scriptural proof texts, hmm. you know, you, you have the sense in Protestant churches that here's the thing we want you to buy, and we're going to paste some scriptures on top of it just to give it some validation. But hmm. this message is this, in a sense, this new attempt to synthesize something. Hmm. When you go to a Roman Catholic church, it's it's quite a different thing, and the same thing with an Orthodox church. So I'm not at all surprised. I'm not at all surprised at your response to both, and in a sense, Protestantism has always been an attempt to offer new a new synthesis, a new globalizing picture of the world. But in many ways, Protestantism hasn't succeeded. 
because it's proposed these things. And so um, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ might be what you hear in an evangelical church. A, um, a mission towards justice and equality might be what you hear in a mainline church or a state church. Um, but the Protestants are sort of all over the map and working on this, and they're going to keep doing what they've done. Hmm. And in a lot of ways, what's happened to Protestants in highly secular places like California, where I live, is that when in the 90s I moved to Sacramento, we were sort of at the end of the seeker methodology, which was an attempt at a synthesis, an attempt at sort of bringing evangelicalism together. And after that came much more of a ancient modern focus on sacraments. And so churches that were planted in the late 90s, early 2000s, that might have a big sound, skinny jeans wearing, um, worship leaders, uh, very modern music, an altar call, um, that sort of peak evangelicalism, now suddenly have weekly Eucharist, a liturgy that wouldn't be dissimilar to what you'd find in an Orthodox or Catholic church, um, attention to the lectionary. So again, you've got an, a Psalm reading, an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, and an epistles reading. You've got liturgical seasons. And, and so in the broadest possible view, Protestants are sort of, you know, saying, okay, we, we threw away too many things. And so we're going to sort of go back and take a look at the tradition again, but, and it's those buts that are going to be integral to, all right, what are we going to do with human sexuality? Mm. What are we going to do with ethnic diversity? Because, you know, if you talk to Jonathan Peugeot, ask the question, what ethnicity ought the saints on the wall to be? What, eth what, what color is Jesus' skin? Now, if you'd say, well, he was, a, he was a first century Jew, we should color him like a first century Jew, you have made a very Protestant move because instead of working the mythology you went back to this historical moment in a very modern historical move. Okay. And we don't know how to work that out because yeah. let's say an Orthodox church is going to build a cathedral in, oh, Kenya, <laughs> Nairobi. Yeah. You're going to have white Jesus up at the dome. Suddenly you've suddenly you've triggered all of this globalization. Don't forget that the Protestant Reformation, you know, is triggered at the beginning of the 16th century. But 15 years before the Protestant Reformation, all of these all of these reformers that 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 disrupted the Catholic Church were born right before Columbus discovered America and globalization began. 
all of those issues are beneath. Now, what's happened in Catholicism, when it truly became a world religion, was they found ways to address that. But, you know, the, the I mean, the Catholic Church is not this peaceful, arenic assembly where there's no conflict or controversy. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, I talk to I talk to Catholics today that seriously ask the question, is the Pope Catholic, which just used to be a joke. So yeah. Yeah. all of these issues continue. Yeah. And and so this this new cohort, I think similar to the cohort that launched the Protestant Reformation, this new cohort are you know going back to the liturgical sacramental traditions but as they're in that tradition for more and more time the implicit questions that were that are inside of their cultural matrix just like that cohort for whom when columbus discovered america and the columbian exchange happened and for the first time in human history, we began having global culture where Europeans got a taste for tobacco and sugar and, you know, and coffee. I mean, that disrupted the world. And yeah. now, of course, you not only had the discovery of the Americas, but you had the printing press. All of that happened in the Reformation. Now globalization is far more developed than it was then especially fueled by the internet and you know the ease and economy of transportation you mm. are a product of two languages and two continents yeah literally <laughs> and so and and so this is going to have an impact and it's going to impact the church and so, you know, even the wrestlings and fightings within the Roman Catholic Church in the Americas right now, at least in North America, because the struggle in South America is different than the struggle in North America and Africa and Asia and Europe. I mean, we have a pope who, you know, cut his teeth with the Franciscans in South America. I mean, we've we've just begun this process and there on one hand an emphasis is let's let's go back to tradition yeah and you'll do that but as you live within tradition you'll realize i can't live in the 17th century <laughs> so how as i continue to try to apply christ's dominion to my real lived life experience today. And as we try to do this as a community, how, what does this look like? That mm. for me is the challenge of being a pastor today. And whereas because of the age of my current congregation, I am not going to place that on their shoulders because they're in their seventies and eighties. They're looking at the door. And so I am going to give them, I'm going to be their pastor. I'm going to walk them out the door, 
But over behind me, I have this internet gathering <laughs> and the meetups yeah. and all of these young people. And I'm thinking, all right, what worked for your grandparents isn't going to work for you. Yeah. What is this actually going to look like hmm. for the church? And how can we be faithful to Christ and not break the narrative thread of the church and, and hopefully rediscover the unity of the church that was lost in the Protestant Reformation for a world which is coming apart at the seams yeah because in many ways of choice so that to me is the challenge and it's a challenge that will require everything it's not a challenge for one person you know it's something we all do together because that's how the church works we all do this together because it's way too big for any one person hmm. and it's it's actually what is happening is that the spirit of God is moving through these things and achieving these things and using us to achieve these things. So that's to me really what's what, what our job is. And we've only just begun at it. Oh man, that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, there's so many things I could touch on in there, but I just want to clarify one thing that you said. So as I understand it, Roman Catholics, Orthodox are trying to sustain the synthesis and protestants are trying to um develop new syntheses that work and are applicable and that can hopefully incorporate a better understanding uh yes. for for individual christians right um yes. so that that process of synthesizing and uh developing things correct me if i'm wrong but i think one of the consequences of that constant new synthesizing is you end up in areas where I'm scrolling on my phone and I see a post from a church and it's got two columns on the one side it says what the bible is on the other side it says what the bible is not and underneath what the bible is not the first thing it says is the word of God and I find it's a progressive Christian church right. is that the consequence or one of the unfortunate side effects maybe of this uh, synthesizing constantly as time goes on trying to not move the world not move not move the world but move with the world right which is the problem where so maybe we can talk a little bit about progressive christianity is progressive christianity and modern christianity are those are those two terms interchangeable for you no okay why not because what happened in the counter-reformation was the modernization of the roman catholic church okay i see and the the council of trent you know, what, what, what the Protestant Reformation forced the Roman Catholic Church to do was clean up its act on a number of scores that over the last few hundred years before the Reformation, the church was continually struggling with. And so it refreshed um, monasticism. There was clerical reform. There was a whole bunch of stuff. In, in many ways, Luther, <laughs> Luther achieved what he wanted to achieve in the first place, it just took a very strange turn and, and in some ways disastrous. But the, Luther eventually managed to reform the Roman Catholic Church for many of the issues that Luther was complaining about in his 95 Theses. Okay, so let's, let's, let's look at that. But let's talk about this dynamic that you're seeing mm -hmm. in, um, in, progressive, in progressive 
mainline Christianity. I say mainline because in the United States, that's sort of the expression of it. But I'm sorry. So what? So sorry. the reason. Sorry, Paul. Just to interrupt. Um, so I said, uh, are they interchangeable? What I what I what I should have said was, do you think progressive Christianity is sort of a consequence of the modernization? And as it's unfolding through time, with this, with with more, as we as we synthesize more, you'll end up with some groups who just completely go off the rails. Sorry to cut you off. Absolutely, there. no, absolutely. Now, and this is where we can. I think it's helpful to come back to Peterson and okay. his Darwinian truth. And if you apply that Darwinian truth to church history, and you look back through church history, you notice that heresy dies and that's sort of the way that the church co-discovers heresy and orthodoxy at the same time augustine saint augustine who in many ways is the father of the latin church saint augustine's mother was likely a donatist and if you look back at that period of history donatism was this response to roman persecution of the church. What happened when there were episodic persecutions of the church, a priest would be called in and told to renounce the faith on pain of death or the death of his flock. And some priests renounced the faith. The Donatists were the hardliners. They came back and said, any priest who renounced his faith is out. You can be a priest no more. We're drawing a line. And that, that makes sense, and you can find justification for that take in some of Christ's words. The Catholic position was, we will let some of them back in. Augustine was Catholic, and in Hippo, if I recall correctly, Augustine's church was tiny, and the Donatist church was huge and thriving in Hippo at the time. The Donatists were a very popular movement in North Africa. They were the hardliners. They were the true believers. They were the ones who held firm because we're not going to let any wobbly priests back in who renounced their Lord under pain of Roman persecution. Mm. Where's the Donatist church today? Wow. They're not here. The Catholic church is here. What does that say? It says that at any given point, it's really hard for short-lived, tiny creatures like human beings to have any understanding of the future. Look at a progressive church today. You know, we're on the right side of history. That is huge presumption. Because what people imagine is that all of these special issues that progressive Christians today, such as the Bible's not the word of God. Oh, okay. Well, tell me what is. Well, there isn't a word of God. Okay, yep. where are you going to really go two or three generations from now? It's going to be a dead end. That yeah. doesn't mean that these issues aren't issues for Catholics. They certainly are. As you know, read any Catholic publication and you know they're dealing with many of the same issues or with many Protestants too. But what tends to happen in the Protestant church is that um, these little groups are, are, are working in, in sort of if you conceptualize these groups as, as let's say, organisms in an evolutionary process, 
you know, maybe the progressive church now looks like a saber toothed tiger, you know, that's big and mean and can mm. do a lot of damage. The big Donatist church. Yeah. Where are they today? So mm. this is the path of this is what has been happening throughout church history all along. And, and in a sense, to come back to Jordan Peterson, part of what he argued about was you ignore, you know, one of the, one of the things that Peterson said that grabbed a friend of mine, um, you ignore the Bible at your peril. Well, why? Well, because the Bible has endured. And that endurance, that ability to continue to change hearts and minds and lives today, you should pay attention to. Because what that tells you is that there's something going on. Now, Christians have long said, yeah, we can tell you what's going on. The Bible is the word of God. Now, yeah. if you say that to Jordan Peterson, he would say, well, Logos, just listen to his last talk with Verveke, Logos, word, and God, those are two such huge terms. We sort of, you know, they spill out over our lips, but if, and as a pastor, I've known this for a long time because people would say things in Sunday school class, like the Bible is the word of God. And they'd expect me to just say, yes, and then we all go on. But I would say, well, tell me what you mean by that. And then suddenly they're like, well, what? I said, tell me what you mean by the Bible is the word of God. No, in this space, I just say that and everyone agrees and we all go on with life. I said, well, yeah, I understand. That's what, that's what church liturgical traditions do. But I want you to think about what those terms mean. And hmm. Protestantism at its best does that. Because the church was just rumbling along and, you know, and part of the problem is that when everyone is just sort of nodding to the words, corruption continues continue to, you know, happen because everyone's nodding at the words and you start turning blind eyes to things that you should, that are really hard to sort of call people on. And so there's a whole process that goes on there. So, yeah, I, you know, the progressives all say, well, we're on the right side of history. And I say, well, maybe, you know, today, for example, none of us bat an eye when you go to a bank. I don't know how it works in South Africa, but here in America, when you want to buy a house, it's a house in California, say it's going to cost six or seven hundred thousand dollars for a house in California today. I don't have that kind of money on me. So if you want to buy a house, maybe you'll have a down payment and you go to a bank and you'll get a mortgage. And guess what that mortgage comes with? Interest. Now, zip back to the 12th or 13th century. Well, you'd have to find a Jew <laughs> to lend money to you at interest because a Catholic can't lend another to another Catholic at interest. So, hmm. well, why suddenly do none of the Roman Catholics are they no longer upset by the fact that you pay interest on a mortgage? I've, I know plenty of Roman Catholics. Not one of them has said to me, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to keep my money in a bank because, because of usury. I don't hear Catholics saying that that changed yeah. now. And this is why I say, you know, no change is happening all around and Catholics yeah. today. I mean, when I was growing up in North Jersey, 
Friday, you could get some really good fish at some of the local delis because yeah, this is a good point you're going to bring up. Please continue. Right. And today, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of Catholics around. I don't see all these fish fries. Now, you will still find some Catholics that won't eat meat on Friday. But that changed. So this whole question is about the modulation of change. Because change too much, you lose the thread. Change too little, you lose your ability to live in this world. And we have no idea how to figure out what to do with usury. Well, we've sort of all adopted it. And the Protestants were sort of at the forefront of it because John Calvin said, well, you shouldn't charge interest if you're, if you're lending something, someone something for survival. But if you're lending them something for business, if someone says, I want to borrow $100,000 from you because I'm going to sell a ship to China and I'm going to buy a bunch of goods in China and I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to bring it here. I'm going to sell it here in Europe for five times what I had to pay for it in China. John mm -hmm. Calvin said, yeah, you can charge interest for that because money means something else in that case than it meant for what Jesus said then. Mm. Interesting. And and so, and at all of these things, I mean, this is why Protestantism, you know, really, really flew. And there were a lot of state churches like the Dutch, Dutch Reformed Church, um, a lot of, you know, the, the Anglican Church, you know, because Protestantism fueled the modern world. And so, you know, sometimes people listen to me as a Protestant when I'm critiquing and sometimes negatively critiquing protestantism and saying at some point the pro the protest needs to end <laughs> and they're like well why are you still protestant oh because on the other hand it had a point and and so what's going to probably happen is that well there are more protestants today in the world than there are roman catholics yeah but they're all divided into these little groups is that a problem yeah it's a big problem all the group, all the church traditions have their problems. Okay. Now, maybe now, and, and part of what I've experienced over the last few years is I am regularly talking to Roman Catholics and Orthodox and Protestants of every stripe. And what we're finding is that right now in this moment, well, in some ways we have more in common together than what's going on out there beyond us. So maybe actually Jesus' prayer and the Gospel of John will get closer to um, living that prayer out and being one. Well, what on mm -hmm. earth is that going to mean? Well, it's going to take centuries probably, but that's the path we're on. Fascinating. Um, I think going back to, well, continuing with the progressive church, I, I actually think that's a good point. I, where do you go in the next 100, 200, 300 years, if the Bible is not the word of God. I mean, ultimately, if it's not the word of God, it has just as much authority as the Encyclopedia Britannica or the McDonald's menu, right? It's, it's, it's just text. It's just the opinions of people. Um, also, it's, it's quite astounding to think when you think about how many motives there have been throughout history to get rid of that book, that it's still here. Right. The fact that it has endured, not just physically endured, um, you know, through 
the preservation of manuscripts, but actually endured in in being read by people, in being debated, in, in being considered, and uh, actually informing people's actions. Um, I think, what else could you call it other than the Word of God? Which is my next question for you is, what does it mean that the Bible is the Word of God? It means, well, what is, what is logos? So you might start with the Greek form of word. Uh, what is the logos of hotheos? What is, what is, and, and then you can, okay, you can get back into Jordan Peterson and John Verveke. Well, what is logos? Well, let's, let's imagine that I'm, I'm conducting a worship service and a dog starts running through the sanctuary and suddenly everybody's paying attention to that dog because it's running around the sanctuary and everybody's thinking, well, there's, there's chaos in the sanctuary because there's a dog running through the sanctuary and we don't have any understanding of it. And then suddenly I say, that's my dog. That word has brought order to an entire environment of chaos. And now suddenly I see, and we all see together a situation we couldn't see before without the word. Mm. And so what we see in Christianity is the Bible is the word of God and Jesus is the word made flesh. Well, the Christian Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Scripture. The Christian Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible is the word of God because the Bible shows us the word of God who is human and divine. And that's how the Bible is the word of God, because the Bible shows us Christ. And God works through his word to help make the world intelligible to us. Mm. Now, well, what about, what about laws against usury? Well, that's, that's, that's a really important question, because when Jesus says, you know, give to everyone who asks of you. Okay, well, what does that mean for every situation when someone asks me for money? Does that mean that I shouldn't show discernment and discretion and ask myself whether or not actually giving money to this individual at this time and place is the manifestation of love? Well, what? where, where did you get love? Well, because you know, giving people money is actually within a hierarchy of what is at the top of the hierarchy in terms of our, how we are to treat others, which mm. is love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And you, and who is my neighbor all the way up to, and including your political, economic, religious rival, the good mm. Samaritan. So suddenly what the Bible does is shines a light gives a word which suddenly makes intelligible the chaos of the world we see around us. Mm. That's how the Bible is the word of God. And Jesus himself does that in his being, in his presence, in his word, in his work, through his spirit, all through human history. So we are seeing the word of God operating through time. So... But it's still, you still, well, someone might listen to me and say, okay, so the Bible is the word of God. What does that mean about same-sex marriage? What does that mean <laughs> about lending at interest? What is that? 
why why couldn't the Jews eat lobster, but why can you when you visit New England? Um, why why does this shirt have two kinds of fabric in it, and you're not violating the word of God? And I'd have to say we can have a conversation about that because what we see in Christianity is is that you know I'm, I'm preaching through this right now in terms of the Apostle Paul. What happens with the Apostle Paul is he makes this bridge hmm. between these Jews who suddenly believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of the resurrection and and then begin to see that in the old in the Hebrew scriptures that this kingdom that um, this kingdom of Israel is going to be a world kingdom but not in the way that they imagined and this is all throughout how Jesus sort of um, sort of redefines what Messiah means throughout the Gospels. That's really what the Gospels are all. And then Paul begins to say, oh, how can we apply this in the Hellenistic Roman world? Can I attend a, a family function or a public meeting in a temple to Aphrodite or Athena or Zeus or Apollo? How do we figure that out? How how do we live next to, you know, when, when I walk into Athens and I see all of these, all of these idols, statues to gods, what's going on? How do we work our way through that? Well, the, the word of God shines light to bring order into this chaos to help us work through those issues. Fascinating. What you said about the uh, the logos is the thing that makes the world intelligible to us. Um, it's I've often found it interesting that when when scientists go out into the world to study the world, there is already within that the presumption of intelligibility, right? There's right. the presumption that there is an order within the world. Uh, just on a slight tangent, this is actually another thing that led me away from pantheism because um, it it has no foundation for the order that you see around you. You might just say, well, things are just the way they are, which sounds like an answer, but it isn't really. Um, but once you understand the concept of logos, that um, everything is um, presenting itself, everything is shaping itself in the world according to a, according to a structure. And you can think that that's just random, but already that it begins to lose lose weight and it begins to it stops making sense because literally the definition of the order is that it's the opposite of randomness and then um on top of that you have the 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 order in speech if i if i am saying a sentence to you and i suddenly just drop a specific word and i just stop taking it out of my sentences you're not going to be able to understand me at some point the more words i remove or if I just start randomly sh shifting the order of the words I speak and it'll get more difficult for you to understand me. Or if I speak a different language, you won't be able to understand me at all if you don't speak that language, right? So it's it's around us, it's it's in our speech, it's it's within us. And then to me, the Bible is just the the written documentation, the inspired documentation, basically describing all of that order we do see around us. And it is itself a product and the source of that order, not the Bible itself, but what the Bible is pointing to. And for me, um, I think 
when the Bible, when I remember when I was younger and I would read uh, John, it would say, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was, uh, was, was God and the Word was with God. I, the, word, the word Word almost seems out of place. It seems word. What does what what word have to do with it, right? As if there is just a word. But actually, once you understand that when I speak and I, I you know, you know that old saying, um, I give you my word, right? I don't hear people say it that much anymore. I don't know how it is in the States, but here in SA, people don't say it anymore. But if I were to say to somebody, I give you my word, that's, I'm basically saying I give you a promise of my 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 character, my essence, who I am. Because when I speak, when I use my word, that is you encountering me through sound, through my voice, through my expressions, through everything. So I give you my word as an extension of that. It's of my essence. It's of the thing that makes me me, the order that makes me myself. And so that order that makes me me, impose that over the whole universe what order is functioning the whole universe that is itself identical to god and you see it in scripture as well does that make sense yep yep okay good excellent okay so paul i've really really enjoyed this conversation i think we can we can cut it off there thank you again so much and uh wishing you a a good day further God bless. Okay. Thanks, Dylan. Take care. Thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye.